All right, you can be seated. Kids can be dismissed. Yeah, he says. Right, so uh, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to First Timothy. Every so often, uh, we come across a word that sort of defines a generation. Um, in the '60s, there was the word "groovy." Everything was groovy. Uh, the '80s taught us that anything could be fat. That's P H A T, fat. Everything was fat. I happened to overuse that word for a long time myself. Uh, sometimes I'll still throw that in in conversation, and people look at me like I'm weird. And I'm like, hey, I'm a child of the 80s. Um, in the 90s, we learned what FOMO meant. Uh, that is, of course, fear of missing out. No one wanted to suffer from FOMO. And then as we millennials grew up, uh, we witnessed the dawn of the smartphone and the dawn of the smartphone led to the word that defined my generation, and that is the word selfie. And now the internet has trillions of them, and it's added to every single day. But the current generation, um, right now, my children and up, um, in my opinion, there's a word that sort of defines this generation. And I don't have any empirical evidence to support this. This is just kind of what I've noticed based on observation, so it's anecdotal. But the word that I think uh, defines this generation, not only in the sense of our expectations, but also uh, it shows how much the average vocabulary per capita has sort of reduced a lot in the text message world. Uh, and we have far more uh, we have far less words that we actually use anymore, which leads to overuse of certain words. And one of those words that is overused in this generation is the word epic. Anyone ever use the word epic? Okay, me too. Uh, I'm ashamed of it. Um, traditionally, the word epic refers to a long poem about a hero's accomplishments, okay? So take Homer writing the Iliad and the Odyssey. Those are examples of epics. Or Beowulf is an epic. Um, though it's not poetry, stories that involve a lot of legendary material and supernatural and natural forces mixing, like J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, uh, could be considered an epic. Basically, the word epic was meant to describe a hero's legend, a story that is larger in life, again, with the natural and the supernatural sort of mixing. Today, the word epic applies to an above-average burrito or nearly any kind of movie at all, definitely anything that uh, involves adrenaline, and perhaps more commonly, um, any kind of mistake or, uh, you know, a mistake that's great or small or, as we know it now, an epic fail. 
the epic fail. Now, in the traditional sense of the word, epic fail should describe a mighty warrior knight who fails to slay the demon dragon as all of the underworld watches with bated breath. But now, if you just trip and fall in front of a cute girl, that is an epic fail. So in one sense, the word epic sums up our reduced vocabulary and our propensity to exaggerate in today's America. But in another sense, the word epic really sums up our expectations. Uh, In a culture that is defined by the perfection and perfect lives that we follow and envy on Instagram, the highlight reels that we see on social media, that we want for our everyday life, we're always on the search for epic. The last thing that we want is good enough. Commercials every day on TV remind us that just okay is the last thing that you would want. We need to be maximally entertained at all times. We need to be always up, never bored, always being stimulated, and never anything less than epic. We want excitement. We want entertainment. We want explosions, fireworks, constant stimulation. We can't stop scrolling. When we turn on Netflix, we scroll through 300 pages of options, and then we end up watching something again for the fifth time because we don't want to take the risk of watching something that may not be as interesting as what we already know. We can't find something enticing enough. I would rather binge watch New Girl again than risk something else that might not catch my attention. I have spent, at times, an hour scrolling through options on Netflix and then not even watching anything by the end of that. Frustrated, I'll just turn it off. After wasting an hour scrolling because nothing grabbed my attention. But even when we do pick something to watch, the things that we watch reinforce our expectations. Any story or movie that we watch about a person's life is always less than two hours long, and it's always a highlight reel. Even though the story that we watch includes highs and lows, what it doesn't include are the character's average, mundane, uninteresting days. Why? Well, because no one would watch that. We want to see the hero triumph on a grand stage. We, we want to see them in, in the ways that they battled through the low times of turmoil. What we don't want is to watch them go to the grocery store or fold laundry or sit at their desk doing spreadsheets. This doesn't just apply to entertainment, this desire for epic. It also applies to lifestyle. Want to lose weight? Want to get in shape? Bring on the fad diet. We linger when we see headlines like 15 ways to lose 15 pounds in 15 days. We look at transformation photos and we immediately ask, what's their secret? Because we want to know what their secret is so that we can take our own after photo in just one month later. And if 
we ask them for their secret, and their secret is something like, well, I didn't do anything special. I just ate healthy and went to the gym four days a week, and there was two years between my before and after photo. We go, next, find me the next one. I want to hear the story about the guy who did this in three months by doing nothing but eating stale kale chips and doing P90X. And by the way, what supplements can I take to speed this process along? But here's what's most damaging. What's most damaging is that we apply the same epic expectations to our spiritual lives. We want a thriving relationship with God. We want a life that is filled with blessing. We want a life where we're not losing the battle to sin. So, we're going to look for the most epic church where the best sermons are preached and the best music is played and the kids' program has live weekly performances from the Wiggles. People talk about, I I left that church because I wasn't being fed. And I'm not trying to downplay the the legitimacy of that because there are situations where that is true, where a person's not being fed. But here is something I want you to consider as we go through this series. How much are you feeding yourself? How much are you spiritually eating every single day on your own, which would then allow you to come to church and not just be fed, but also participate in the feeding of others? Every time we walk into church, we want an emotional revival experience right now. Now, this is kind of a a semi-topic Uh, semi-off-topic aside, Um, but can we just talk for a second about how uh, there are certain churches, Baptist churches specifically, that schedule revivals every single year? Uh, Raise your hand if you've ever been to a church that does that, that schedules revival services. Okay, this was huge in the South. Um, I worked at a church that scheduled revival services every fall, And, and again, I'm not trying to knock anybody here, Um, I'm not trying to throw shade at any churches, but seriously, for real, we're going to say, all right, Holy Spirit, I've penciled you in for October 5 through 7, and I've scheduled the best speakers that our budget can afford to help you out. So, now's your time. Again, this is not not an effort to throw any shade at a church, And, and having a spiritual emphasis week can be a very good thing. But why don't we call it that, (laughs) Spiritual Emphasis Week, and wait until afterwards when we see the results of that Spiritual Emphasis Week and decide at that point whether or not what happened was a revival. But we have these expectations in our spiritual lives every day, these same epic expectations. Read through the Old Testament, stop at Leviticus. Too boring. Take me to Acts instead. 28 chapters? Too long. Take me to one of the uh, epistles of Paul. Too hard to understand. Ah. How about just take me to an Instagram page that posts daily inspirational Bible verses? How about prayer? Okay, pray for 10 minutes. All right, close my eyes. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. And gosh, what was it that was on my grocery list that I forgot to get. 
sugar? Was it sugar? Man, I really need to stop eating so much sugar. Maybe, maybe it was stale kale chips that I forgot. Wait, what was, what was I praying again? Oh, yeah. Uh, thank you for this day. Uh, I can't do this. This is too hard. Isn't that how it often goes? And it's no wonder that we're so confused about why we never reach this epic level of spirituality. We'll stay at a church for a few months, maybe longer, then realize that it's not epic and we keep moving. Or we'll get really into a new program or a new uh, ministry or a new effort, and then it fizzles out once the momentum of newness wears off. We'll set a goal that we're going to read three chapters of the Bible every day. And then we only last three days. We'll start fighting a battle against habitual sin. And we'll go up and down, sometimes losing, sometimes winning, but continually searching for that magic bullet that's going to bring us victory. And so we experience frustration after frustration, disappointment after disappointment. And and it brings us to a point of disillusionment, wondering what on earth we could possibly be missing. The truth is... We don't need to find a secret. There is no magic bullet that will change everything. There's not some hidden answer that we have to find. And what we're going to do in this series is look very plainly at the message of Scripture and how Scripture leads us to the abundant life that Christ intended. And isn't that what we want? We want to live abundant lives. We want to live satisfied lives. We want to live content and consistent lives, right? And there's clear instruction in Scripture about how to actually live that kind of life. But the thing is, it's not epic. You might say it's the opposite. And it centers around a word that we all love to hate. And that word is discipline. Over the next six weeks, we're going to examine the Bible's instructions on disciplined Christian living. And my hope is that together, we're going to learn how to instill healthy habits that will lead to the life that God desires for us. Now, please understand, when I'm talking about this opposite of epic stuff, I understand that I am running the risk of sounding like I'm advocating some kind of a boring, dull, lifeless sort of a life. But that's not true at all. What I'm referring to is a life that is steady. Through ups and downs, through exciting moments and not so exciting moments, when things are hard, when things are easy, I'm talking about a life that is built on a solid foundation so that it doesn't get swept away when the storm comes. And that life is definitely going to include moments that are epic. But we need to learn how to be content when things aren't so epic. So, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 16. And the words will be behind me on the screen as I read. Paul, writing to Timothy, says this. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. 
rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So let's talk for a moment about the context of this book, of 1 Timothy. The Apostle Paul is writing this book towards the end of his ministry, and he's in a process where he's sort of passing the torch along. Timothy is a young leader in the church that Paul first met in a city called Lystra. And uh, through a process of mentorship and discipleship, Paul essentially adopts Timothy as sort of a spiritual son. And so Timothy is now pastoring in one of the churches that was planted during the missionary journeys. And Paul is giving him instructions on how to properly lead. So in this book, he does things like setting a clear set of expectations for qualifications of church leadership. He gives instructions regarding the weekly worship services. He, he goes through and he touches on almost every type of interpersonal relationship. And he also deals with some of the difficulties that were unique to Timothy's setting. And one of the major difficulties that Timothy was up against was that there were a number of false teachers who had infiltrated the church and they're leading people astray with their heretical teaching. These teachers that he is referring to had embraced an early form of what would later be known in the second century as Gnosticism. So here's a very brief probably oversimplified explanation of what Gnosticism is. The word gnosis, the Greek word gnosis, means knowledge. And so they were centered on secret knowledge. The Gnostics believed that Jesus was a deity, but one among many lesser deities in a pantheon of deities. They believed that all physical matter was evil, and that Only in the supernatural could we find what is good. But they didn't believe that the human condition was plagued by sin. Sin, to the Gnostics, was not the problem. The problem to the Gnostics was ignorance, a lack of knowledge. And so, salvation could be found in finding out that secret knowledge that will set them free from ignorance. So they made a lot of rules that pertain to the belief that matter is evil, like saying certain foods were bad to eat or that marriage was bad. And so these false teachers, these early Gnostics, have infiltrated the church. 
where, where Timothy is pastoring. And, and they've got this theology that at this point in, in, in history has an appearance of godliness. It has enough truth that it looks close enough to where a number of people are being convinced. And, and the thing is, what they offered to the people in their teaching was very enticing. They were offering more than what you would find in true doctrine. They were offering secret, exciting, exclusive. They were offering epic. We read in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, that they're obsessed with myths and genealogies. Uh, He writes in in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So, these people are continually coming up with systems of commands that they are claiming lead to godliness. And and these were the people that would have been writing blogs with titles like Five Things the Apostles Left Out of Their Sermons That You Definitely Need to Know. Or these are 10 ways to unlock the Old Testament for your best life now. What we learn in chapter 6 is that these teachers are primarily concerned with profiting from their ministry. These guys are slick, charismatic televangelists. And so their teaching was resulting in dissension in the church. It was resulting in people walking away from the truth. And and it was also leading to other people just simply asking, so what is the the, the truth? And so Paul, in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy, in these two letters, he instructs him on how to establish what it looks like for the church and for the individual to follow Jesus. He establishes how to properly lead. He establishes how overseers should shepherd the flock. So that's where we pick up in the portion of 1 Timothy that we read at the beginning. And the instructions are pretty much the opposite of epic. So if you're taking notes, here's point number one. Point number one, spiritual maturity is never like a microwave. It's always like a slow cooker. Spiritual maturity is never like a microwave. It is always like a slow cooker. The analogy there, of course, is self-explanatory. A microwave will give us food right now. It's quick. It's easy. In 60 seconds or less, you can have a hot meal. A slow cooker is the opposite. As the name suggests, it cooks very slowly. But I think we would probably agree that the results that come out of the microwave and that come out of the slow cooker are very, very different themselves. And what would you rather have, assuming you're not the one that has to cook it, what would you rather have presented to you to eat? Something that took 60 seconds or less or something that was slowly tended to over the process of eight hours or more by a chef? Well, of course, we would choose the latter. The results of a long, slow process taste better. Depending on what it is, they could probably be much healthier. 
and will probably be far more satisfying. Spiritual maturity is much the same way. We do not become firmly established disciples of Jesus Christ in one epic fell swoop. It takes time. Allow me to read the passage for this evening one more time so that it's fresh in our minds. And as I do, I want you to notice the verbs that Paul uses to instruct Timothy. These verbs are train, toil, strive, devote, practice, immerse, progress, keep watch, and persist. Listen for those words. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. These are not exhilarating, exciting, OMG, epic types of verbs, are they? No. These are words that call our attention, that draw our minds to a disciplined, consistent, steady life. Uh, In verse 7, he tells him to train. Uh, He says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. And the word that's used there for the word train is the Greek word gumnazo. And that Greek word gumnazo is also translated discipline. This word is specifically a word that's used in conjunction with another similar Greek word, gymnasia. Does that sound familiar? Gymnasia? It's the gymnasium. This was a word that was used to describe athletes training in the gym in order to excel in their sports. And he further clarifies this usage by then in the very next verse talking about bodily training. He says, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So essentially what he's saying here is Timothy You know the ways that athletes train in the gym, and that's a valuable practice. But even more valuable is the same daily grind as you apply it to your spiritual life. That is truly what is going to make a difference. Now, 
this is not the type of instruction or, or the type of advice that's going to give him a front page headline on first century cosmopolitan. But it's exactly what we need for ourselves. We need to be reminded that a steady, effective, successful life is going to be the result of spiritual disciplines, not flash-in-the-pan secrets and tips. Now contrast this with the way that Paul describes false teachers. Remember, these false teachers are identified by the way that they're always searching for quick fixes, by easy profit and secret advantages. Look at how they're described in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Paul says, The aim of our charge is to love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So he describes them in such a way that he says that the way that they divert from the truth is what? What was the verb there? He says they swerve. Okay, that's not a slow move. You never swerve slowly. If you're turning slowly, you are just turning slowly. But a swerve is a sudden change in direction. So... These guys are doing that with their teaching. They're they're swerving away from the truth of established scripture. And that's exactly what happens when we look for epic all the time. Oh, maybe it's over there. Nope, not there. Maybe it's that way. Oh, there's the secret. Swerving back and forth, back and forth. And it says in verse 7 that what they desire is to be teachers before they've taken time to even understand Scripture. He says, they desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So they're, they're asserting themselves to be leaders when they don't even understand the things that they're saying, the, the things that they're teaching. They want to move quick. They, they want to skip the training. They want to skip the dedication. They want to they say, no, 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 let's, let's find a secret hidden somewhere deep in a genealogy that gives us all the answers right now. I don't need to train. I don't need to mature. I can lead today, right now, just based on my own giftedness. Then another contrast that Paul provides is in chapter 3. In chapter 3, Paul lays out the qualifications for overseers. And so he he describes an overseer like this. He says, first, they must be a proven manager. Verse 4 of chapter 3, he must manage his own household well. Then he says that he can't be a recent convert. In verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Then it says that he has to have a proven reputation with the community. He must be thought well of by outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace. Then in verse 3 and also in verse 9, it says that he can't be someone who is greedy. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. And then in verse 10, this is the ultimate description. He says, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. 
So he says the overseers, the leaders, have to be tested. It has to be established that they're good managers. They can't be recent converts. They have to have a proven reputation with the community. They can't be greedy, and they have to be tested. That's a long-term process. And I realize that those descriptions are primarily speaking about leaders in the church. But these verses apply to all of us. Because what these verses give us is, a, is an expectation of what it looks like to be a mature believer. Which is what all of us should desire to be. What God wants for all of us is to be able to meet these qualifications. So, spiritual maturity happens in the slow cooker of spiritual dedication. Here's point number two. Like weight training, progress happens through progressive overload. Like weight training, progress happens through progressive overload. Look back briefly at verses four, I'm sorry, chapter four, verses 15 through 16, where he says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I want to focus specifically on three words in those two verses. Those three words are practice, progress, and persist. Practice, progress, persist. Uh, raise your hand if you enjoy going to the gym and lifting weights. Really? You're weird. Uh, okay, raise your hand if whether or not it's something you enjoy or not, it's something that you regularly or semi-regularly do. Okay. I personally hate going to the gym and lifting weights. Um, I hate it less than I used to, and I'll explain why uh, later, but it's not now, and I doubt ever will be, something that I would ever describe as being fun. Okay, this is not something that is enjoyable. Part of it, for me specifically, one of the reasons why it's not fun for me, is because in any gym I go to, I am always the skinny guy. Okay? Uh, any gym I walk into, I am immediately the scrawniest guy there. Period. And, and so I, I go into the gym, and it's full of meatheads, right? Meatheads, and they're all wearing these shirts that barely can be described as shirts anymore, okay? You know the ones that I'm talking about where they've got a shirt on, but it's cut out from like the collar all the way down to like a half inch below the bottom, and there's barely anything in the front or the back, and you're like, why are you even, like that's not even a shirt anymore. Like what is the point of even trying this? And, and so then they'll, they'll put a, a, a bunch of weight on, on the bar, and as they're lifting, they're grunting really loud, right? Grunting really loud, and on their last rep, they practically throw that thing down on the floor was, to make as much noise as possible, and then they let out these guttural screams while pounding their chest. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm over in the corner with 35s like, I can't stand it. 
They're over there in the mirror taking selfies and flexing their big muscles. And I'm rolling my eyes, okay, because I'm always the scrawniest guy in the gym. There was one time I went into the gym. I was feeling kind of self-conscious. All these other guys around me, these meatheads, and they're lifting huge weights. I'm barely doing anything at all. And so I'm trying to hype myself up a little bit. And I'm like, you know what? I just got to focus on the positives, okay? At least in this gym, I got the best beard out of anybody here, okay? I'm just going to focus on that. No sooner did I think that thought, in walks this guy who's built like an Olympic lifter, and he's got this huge beard like a Viking, and I out loud look at him and I go, are you kidding me? And he just kind of looked at me and like kept walking, and I'm like, I can't even have the best beard in here. This is ridiculous. But here's the thing, like, I look at these guys, and, and I'm thinking to myself, I wish I could lift like they do. In part, I wish I could look like they do. I don't wish I could be like they are, because then I would have to devolve into being a caveman. But I'd like to have their muscle. So I hate going in there with these Neanderthals, because I'm so puny. So for the longest time, I, I would go sometimes, and then I would fall off. It, it, it never stuck. But then something changed. And do you know what that was? It was my youngest brother, Nico. Uh, Nico and I both graduated high school around the same weight. Okay? I graduated high school at 120 pounds at 6 feet tall. Okay? My high school hockey team named me Chicken Legs. Nico was very similar. Uh, even though we're six years apart, he and I have been uh, confused for twins many, many times. We, we basically have the exact same build, the exact same genetic makeup. We're like the same person, okay? A few years ago, Nico started really getting into weightlifting. And, and by this time, he was about 140 pounds. So that was his official start weight. And, and so he started studying, and he, he began to learn the ins and outs of physiology. He was trying his hand at various systems, and he landed on a system by this guy named Mike Matthews that focuses on progressive overload. Progressive overload means adding a little bit of weight a little bit at a time. So if you start on a particular exercise lifting 50 pounds and you do that comfortably for a couple of weeks, then add five more pounds. Do that for a couple more weeks, and then when your body adjusts, add five more pounds. If you can't add five more pounds, add two and a half. Add two pounds, something, and then you get comfortable with that, and on and on and on. Progressive overload is a tiny bit of progress, a little bit at a time. It's not sexy. It's not a quick fix. And, and, of course, there's lots of other stuff that I'm leaving out about all the, the system here, like nutrition, a bunch of other things. But what it requires is steady dedication. And so that's what Nico did. Five times a week, steadily dedicating himself. He, he didn't do crazy crash diets. He, he didn't follow muscle-building secrets in Bodybuilder magazine or anything like that. He just progressively overloaded a little bit at a time. 
couple of months ago, he stepped on the scale, sent me a picture because he was pumped that he had finally hit his first major goal of weighing 200 pounds. My dude had put on 60 pounds of muscle. He is no longer the scrawny guy in the gym. Sadly, he has begun to pick up some of the Neanderthal habits, which I have directly addressed with him. He sent me a video of him doing a a record in squats, and he started grunting, and the first thing I texted him back was, don't be that guy, man. Don't be that guy. But he's made this progress, and, and I'm proud of him. Nico, if you're listening, I'm proud of you, dog. His success changed my perspective on working out. And I'm not nearly where he is, not even close. I can't lift the things that he can lift. But I've only been at it since December. I've only been at this for a few months. And I've already gained 20 pounds so far. It's the first time in my life I've ever had any progress. And it was because of slow Dedicated, progressive overload. This is the idea that Paul presents to Timothy in chapter 4, verses 15 through 16. Practice, progress, persist. Practice, progress, persist. Practice, progress, persist. When we're talking about these spiritual disciplines, I know that I haven't specifically gotten into what those are yet, So just for a second here, in talking about what we're referring to, in this series, we're going to cover five spiritual disciplines. Out of, depending on the list that you look at, there could be dozens of spiritual disciplines, but we're going to look at five different ones. The first is daily meditation on God's Word. Daily meditation in Scripture. The second one is daily time in real, actual prayer. Number three is fasting. Number four is accountability. And number five is my favorite one, rest. And here's what often happens when we approach these things. Because these are things that we talk about a lot in church, right? All of us have heard ad nauseum. You got to read your Bible every day. You got to pray. That's not new information to any of us. But what we often do when we approach these things is we approach them like a fad diet. We approach it like P90X. We walk into the gym, right, into church, and we hear other people or we read about other people or we see someone's perfect quiet time on Instagram, and we hear things like read five chapters of the Bible a day and pray for an hour, and we go, all right, let's do it, and then we jump into it, and it only takes a week before we realize spiritually I'm not able to lift that kind of weight yet. I haven't built myself up to that yet. I can't digest that much yet. And so we try to go from zero to 60, and we're unable to sustain it. And then we burn out quickly, and we go right back to where we were before, sitting on the couch, eating social media junk food. And nothing ever changes. But Paul says to to Timothy, practice. Practice these things. He he says, immerse yourself in them. Little by little, small, progressive overload. 
next week when we talk about what it means to meditate on Scripture, we'll, we'll begin to really examine what it means to do that. But start small. For now, let me just say, start small. Maybe it's one psalm. Maybe it's a five-verse chunk. When we're talking about prayer, don't go home and say, I'm going to pray for an hour every day starting tomorrow. Let's do this. Maybe start with five uninterrupted minutes. If that's too much, start with one minute. There's no shame in that. Get comfortable in doing that every day. Do that for a while. Practice. And then add a little more. This is not a sexy, quick fix. But if we make this the pattern of our lives, at some point, maybe we will be those people who pray and read scripture for three hours a day. Those spiritual bodybuilders who are able to lift so much of the word. I'm certainly not there yet. But maybe I could be. Little by little by little. And before we move on, I, I want to uh, emphasize one other thing, that this is not about performance. That this is not about ticking a box every day and saying, all right, I did my Christian duty, moving on. This is about what is doing what is necessary to put us in the best possible position to grow. The other thing is, if we're doing these things as a means of earning God's favor, we're doing it for the wrong reason. If we fall into a mindset of, God will love me more if I read the Bible five times a week than if I read it only once a week. That is going to put us in a pattern of self-effort and self-destruction because it's built on pride. That's not what we're talking about at all. What we're talking about is building healthy habits that lead to growth. So, final point, point number three. Discipline will lead to victories in this life and ultimate victory forever. Uh, verse eight, Paul says this. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This spiritual training, he says, holds value for the present life and also for the life to come. And, and it holds value for different reasons in those two contexts. In the context of this present life, we have to understand that we're never going to be able to stop grinding while we are here on earth. While we're here on earth, if you're not growing, you're dying. We have a constant battle of pushing back the darkness. It is a constant struggle against the flesh, a constant struggle against sin, a constant struggle against the world and the brokenness and, and darkness and, and everything else. And the only way is to continue to grind. But as we continue that grind, it will lead to victories in battle. More victories in battle. More victories in battle until the war is finally over. And that's the second part, that it is valuable not in this life just, but also in the, the life to come. Uh, one time, Billy Graham, famous 
evangelist that all of us, I'm sure, have heard of. One time he was asked what he is looking forward to most about heaven. Okay, we would probably answer that question with things like, I can't wait to see my dad again. Or, I can't wait to be in a place with no pain, or, or, or whatever. So Billy Graham was asked, what are you looking forward to most about heaven? And his answer was, I won't have to fight anymore. I love that. He said, I won't have to fight anymore. Because he recognized that every single day is a grind. Every single day is a fight. Every single day is a battle in a war that will be waged until we get there. Because there's no such thing as having arrived until we get to heaven. There may be some that think, once I reach a certain level of godliness, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be better. I'm going to be so much closer to Jesus and everything's going to be perfect. But the thing is, we're never going to reach a point where things are easy. We're never going to reach a point where we can just kick back and put our feet up and relax. That, that's not realistic. We're never going to come to a place where we've learned enough about God that we can stop pursuing and, and stop fighting. The truth is, if anything, the, the deeper we go, the more we grow, the closer we get to him, the more it reveals the depth of our sin the more we realize just how far we fall short. We start in our early Christian life thinking about the big stuff, right? The, the big, obvious sins, and those are, those are the things that our attention is drawn to. But as we go deeper and deeper into our walk with Christ, he, he shows us things that we didn't even realize about ourselves, and we go, oh my God, I am depraved. <laughs> I never knew this about myself. I'm realizing more and more and more because light is shining into the darkness, and, and it shows clearly just how bad I am, how desperate I am for the grace of a Savior. But Paul says that if we continue in this training, spiritual training, like bodily training, which is valuable, if we continue in this training, if we keep grinding, it's at that point that we'll begin to consistently win. It's not sexy, it's not flashy, but it's steady. And when flashy fails, steady never will. So here's what I want us to do. The beginning of this series. I want us all together to commit to starting this journey. Wherever we are in our gym progress, okay? Like me in the corner, lifting 35s, like, that might be us. Wherever it is, let's commit to starting this journey. And what I want you to do specifically this week is to get a buddy. Any Toy Story fans, right? Uh, You remember when Woody is always like, find a moving buddy. If you don't have a moving buddy, get one. Find a buddy. In the final message of this series, five weeks from now, I'm going to talk about the importance of accountability. But I want to start right now by saying that this sort of thing has been proven by many, many studies to be more successful if you don't do it alone. When we do stuff with other people, it ups our chances of success a thousandfold. So, 
If you do this in community, it is far more likely to succeed. So I want you to pray about a buddy that you can go through this journey with. And as we go through this series over the next six weeks, you and your moving buddy can commit to doing these things together. Sound good? All right, let me close us in prayer. God, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn how to lead a disciplined life. And in that disciplined life, Father, I pray that you would help us to build healthy spiritual habits. Habits that will lead us into a steadiness, a consistency, a life of consistent victory. Not one without loss. Not one where we don't experience sin any longer, but Lord, one in which we are walking more closely with you, more consistently. God, I pray for anyone who is here or listening online that, uh, that we would commit together to starting this journey, finding someone to go on it with us, and Lord, that you would bring us to a place of abundant life that is, more often than not, epic. We pray in this Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, uh, Daryl will play our final song. Praise God for that. What an amazing truth that the resurrected king is resurrecting all of us. Um, I hope that you are excited about this series as I am. Uh, To be excited about discipline is weird, but I am really excited to go through uh, this with you guys. And I know that there's a number of people that couldn't be here tonight for various reasons. So what I would also ask as you're praying for a moving buddy this week is that you would join me in inviting everybody back to be a part of this with us. Um, Not only the people who are already a part of our church, but also those who are not saying, hey, come back and join me in this uh, journey together. Let me close this in prayer. God, thank you so much that you resurrect us, that from the ashes of defeat by your resurrecting power, Lord, we rise. We claim that victory for ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in that victory every single day, not just while we are in here, but out there. God, I pray that the the power of your word today and, and being in your presence in worship has encouraged us and equipped us to go out and live out the gospel every single day in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, in every context where we find ourselves. God, I pray that you would help us to remember that the mission starts after church. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.